0: if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to Psalm 71. This morning's message is titled, A Refuge That Rescues. What comes to your mind when you hear that word, refuge? In your mind's eye... Do you picture a place where someone running from danger goes to hide? Well, as we turn our attention to Psalm 71, we quickly discover that the word refuge is at the heart of this text, which means that from the outset of our study of this chapter this morning, we need to have a right picture of a refuge. So what does the author mean by this word refuge? Here's a quick story that I think illustrates this point well. A few days ago, I watched a video clip of a grizzly bear walking on a a shoreline with her two cubs. She was pretty far ahead of her cubs, and they were back sort of playing with one another and curiously wandering around when out of nowhere, a coyote appears and begins to inch its way closer to the cubs. And at the cubs, when they first saw this predator, they sort of stood their ground and they acted tough and they acted like they could defend themselves. But quickly, they realized they were in serious danger. And they retreated back to their mother. This retreat was a perfect picture of what our author of Psalm 71 means by refuge. Not only was this a safe hiding place for the cubs to retreat to, it was also a refuge ready to fight and defend them. As they moved towards her in retreat. She moved towards them in protection and care and rescue. And friends, I want to argue this morning, what we need in in life is not simply a hiding place. We need a hiding place that will fight for us. Psalm 71 tells us that God is that (laughs) hiding place. God is that refuge that rescues for the believer. In fact... He tells us this, through every age and every stage of our lives, God promises to rescue his people from their trouble. Through every age and every stage of life, God promises to rescue his people from their trouble. So if you would now please join me as we turn our attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, that is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Psalm 71, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and the cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, for my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together. And they say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You, who have done great things, O God, who is like you, you have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. But they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Amen. Let's take a second and go to the Lord in prayer to ask for his blessing. As we sit under his word. Lord, Psalms 71 is just a delight, God. And so I just want to ask you for you to please help us. Please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first point this morning is retreat to be rescued, verses 1 to 3. Now, we don't know who wrote this psalm or the, even the circumstances in his life leading up to the writing of this song. but what we do know from the outset is that he faced real danger, and he needed help. He was in some serious trouble. But what he did, when facing troubles in his life and threats in his life, made all the difference in the world. Instead of trying to fight his troubles and his own strength, he retreated to God through prayer and asked for his help. He's like that young bear cub that retreated quickly back to its mother's side for protection, for rescue. But why did he retreat to God? Well, the reason is because God was his refuge, his righteousness, his rescue his rock. Look right here in verse one. He says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Now, I've been meditating on this little phrase throughout this week, in you. And I wondered why he used this at the beginning of his prayer. Well, listen to Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who gives us some insight into the inexhaustible depths of those two words in you. He says this, the knowledge of our union with Christ gives us confidence in prayer. It was when Jesus had begun to expound the closeness of this union that he also began to introduce the disciples to the true heart of prayer. If Christ abides in us and we abide in him as his word dwells in us, and we pray in his name, that God hears us. But all of these expressions are simply extensions of the one fundamental idea. If I am united to Christ, then all that is his is mine. So long as my heart, will, and mind are one with Christ and his word, I can approach God with the humble confidence that my prayers will be heard and answered." So it's not just that we come to him in prayer, but we actually come in him, in Christ, to the Father in prayer. That position, in him, we're talking positional, that position is what affords us the privileges of his protection. Then he says in verse 2, In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Now, what comfort can be drawn from his appeal to God's righteousness? Do you think about God's righteousness as something to draw comfort in? Or do you see it as something to be afraid of, like Luther did? before his conversion. Well, for the psalmist, God's righteousness brought him comfort because it reminded him of God's unfailing faithfulness to keep his promises to protect his people. God's righteousness reminded the psalmist of God's unfailing promises to protect his people from trouble. And at last, in verse 3, he says, Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my refuge. Now, this reference to God as a rock of refuge indicates that the psalmist sees God as a safe hiding place when pursued by his enemies. Oftentimes, throughout the Psalms, David would seek refuge in caves. He would hide in caves and seek shelter in them. Well, whoever this psalmist is had that picture of God in his mind, had a picture of God as a place that he could run and hide as the person of God, as a a place, as the person of God as a place that he could run and hide for safety, for refuge, for rescue. But God is no ordinary cave of rescue. He's not just an empty, deep hole that you can hide up in and store away from your enemies outside of their sight, outside of the reach of their grasp. Now, this cave, this hiding place, this refuge rescues. He says, you have given the command to save me. So God isn't just on the defensive Come to me, hide up in me, and they won't find you. No, he's also on the offensive. He's on the move. You have commanded to save me. So here's the picture that we should really have. Maybe a cave isn't the best picture unless it has teeth. Maybe a better picture is a castle. I haven't seen a castle, but I've seen a lot of movies that have castles. And they have a drawbridge over a moat. And you cross the moat, and you get into the castle, and someone's there hoisting these chains, drawing up the drawbridge. So imagine that. God is your refuge. God is your hiding place. God is your safety. You run to him. You run to the castle of your safety. You cross the drawbridge. You make it inside the door. He closes you up in him. Okay, that's your hiding place. But then all of a sudden, archers take their positions. Your enemies pursue you to the moment of contact, but there the archers are ready to take you out. Take out your enemies. That's that's the picture the psalmist has of God. And that's one of the reasons why he was so confident to go to God in prayer during his hour of need. If God was just simply a hiding place, that couldn't attack, that couldn't defend. And we might have reasons to retreat elsewhere. But this is a hiding place that we can certainly hide in, but who also goes on the attack that commands to save us. Friend, do you picture God as your protector? Is your mental picture When you hear that word refuge and associate it with with the Lord, do you see God as your protector? Do you imagine by faith that once you reach out to Him in prayer that He draws near to you and defends you? Well, the Word of God assures us that He is our refuge, He is our righteousness, He is our rescue. He is our rock. Let's our second point this morning. Rescued from serious danger. Verses 4 through 11. At the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, there is a dangerous predator known as an angel shark that lies just underneath the sand, waiting for unsuspecting fish to cross its path. And the moment that a smaller fish swims near its location, the angelfish bursts up from its camouflaged self underneath the sand and seizes the prey in its mouth. But there is one fish that is armed with a secret weapon. The horn shark is equipped with a sharp, Razor like fin at the top of its back, so that when the angel shark engulfs it, they are pricked at the roof of their mouth and they are forced to release this fish back into the ocean totally unharmed. Well, likewise, the psalmist tells us in this opening verse of this section that his enemies have latched on to him. They have latched themselves around him. They have seized him. They have taken hold of him. But nevertheless, he has has a secret weapon to ward off his enemies. He says this in verse 4, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. Not only is this guy in fear of danger, he's firmly in the grip of danger. He's in the hands of danger. He's in the mouth of the predator. And whatever the situation is, he's entangled in some serious problems. So, what does he do? What does he do when he's entangled in these serious problems? Does he exert all of his willpower to try and free himself from the strong grip of his enemy? No. He simply cries out to the Lord for help. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, rescue me. Friends, if you find yourself entangled in sin, Surrounded by your enemies. The psalmist says to us, Cry out to God for his rescue. Shout out to him intentionally, use the language of the Psalms rescue me, oh my God. Friend, do you think yourself too deep in trouble to find you and help you? Do you think yourself too entangled? in problems that he, he certainly can't untangle you or, or, or wouldn't untangle you, wouldn't take the time. Well, there's an amazing story in Jesus' life where he's in the grip of his enemies, but God rescues him. You know this story. It's an amazing story. Uh, that if you're not paying attention to, the details can just pass you by. In Luke 4, 28 to 30, It's immediately after Jesus is in his hometown, and he announces at the synagogue, the local corporate gathering of God's people, he announces to his hometown, people who were there when he was growing up, he announces to them, I am the Savior of the world. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. But instead of the townspeople bowing down to worship him, it says the crowds did this. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, that is indignation, that is anger. And they rose up, and they drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But look at this. But passing through their midst, he went away. How did he do that? The town is pushing him to the cliff, and then he passes through their midst. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 71? He passed right through their midst. He, The psalmist is saying, I'm in the grip of the enemy. They've got me. They've wrapped themselves around me. I'm taken captive. But he says in verse 5, that God alone is his hope. God alone is his trust. And upon God alone, verse 6 says, he leaned upon through his whole life. In verse 7, he says this I have been as a portent to many, or as the NIV says, I have become a sign to many. Now, this means that people are beginning to suggest that the decline in the psalmist's prosperity must be an indication that God has abandoned him. Reading the signs of the times of the psalmist's life, and it appears, because of his decline in prosperity, God's abandoned him. But here's what I think is powerful, really, 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 really powerful in verse 7. Even though... People are speculating about his right standing before God. Even though he hears the whispers of the townspeople that he is no longer in right standing with God as a result of his decline and prosperity, he's not affected. Look what he says in verse 7. I hear them. I hear the talk of the townspeople. I know what they're saying. They're reading my life, but here's here's my confession. You are my strong refuge. Emphasis should be placed upon the word you. Italics should be placed in that word you in verse 7. Concerning his own strength, speaking of himself, the psalmist says in verse 9, Do not cast me off in the time of old age, forsake me not when my strength is spent. You are my strong refuge. He's abandoned. Any notion of self dependence, of self reliance to protect himself, to rescue himself from this serious danger. Now, whoever this psalmist was, he had a lot of enemies who were patiently waiting for the right moment, the opportune time to strike, to attack him, to ambush. And what better time than when his strength is spent? He reveals in verses 10 and 11 that his enemies perceive his weakness as a sign that God has removed his hand of protection from his life, and that this must be the moment. This is the moment they've all been waiting for, the moment to take him, to snatch him, to seize him. But the psalmist's confidence in God cannot be shaken. His confidence is not shaken by the threat of his enemies. His confidence is in the righteousness of God. And to remind you what that means, that is God's faithfulness to keep his promises to his people to protect them. I want to be like this guy when I grow up. He hears the talks of the enemy. That would rattle the most of us. Hear the threats of the enemy. Hear the accusations of the enemy saying you're no longer in right standing with God. They just mean nothing to him. He's an older man now. He's heard these things before, and experience has taught him I don't lean on your words, and I don't lean on your feelings. I lean on the unchanging character and the word of God. That's where I lean. Listen to this. New Testament Jesus says something just like this. John 10:28, he says, "Speaking about you, my Christian friend, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand." Listen. I know that some of you feel like you are in the grip of the enemy. You are surrounded and entangled in some trouble or some sin, and that there is no way out. In fact, you may even sense the enemy speaking to you that he's got you. There's no hope. And there's no rescue. There's no getting out of this situation. (laughs) But the psalmist says to you this morning, fight and flight. Fly to God and let him fight to protect you. My Christian friend, cry out to God in faith. Verse 4, rescue me. You can't say anything else. Because the cords of your enemies have wrapped around you so tight, say these two words, rescue me. That you may be entangled in troubles, in the grips of the enemy, God commands that you call out to him through every age and every stage of life, and he promises to protect you from your troubles. That leads to our third and final point this morning, praising God in faith. Praising God in faith, verses 12 to 24. In this section, we'll see that before the psalmist experiencing, experiences the rescue that he's asking for, he begins to praise God for what he sees as a certain rescue in his life. There's a story in the life of George Mueller that reminds me of this very thing. If you're unaware, George Mueller was alive during the 1800s and is most widely known for the principles on which he founded and funded his orphanages in London. Instead of soliciting for donations, Mueller decided at the beginning of his ministry that he would only ask in prayer for God's provision, whatever he needed, whatever the, the orphanages needed. Well, there's one story that goes that it was at a time in in the life of the orphanage that there was not a penny in the bank account and the cupboards were totally and completely empty. He wakes up and the 2,000 plus kids assemble in the dining hall in in the breakfast area and there's nothing there on their tables for food. But George Mueller walks in their direction and he begins to pray. And he says, thank you, God, for the provision that you've given us today. And as his biography says, that there are kids looking around like, what provision? And at that moment, there was a knock at the door, and it was a baker. And the baker says that sometime around 2 a.m. in the morning, God had awoken him in sleep and told him that he needed to feed the orphanage because they they, they needed food. And he couldn't sleep the rest of the night, and so he goes to the bakery, he goes to his bakery and gets all of his baked goods and brings them to the orphanage, knocks at the door at this exact moment that Mueller's praying for provision. Now, that's amazing. But then, after the baker leaves, there's another knock at the door. They go to the door and they find that this time it's the milkman. The milkman happened to be driving by their location when his truck broke down. And realizing that the milk was going to spoil, decided that it would be best to donate the milk to the orphanage and asked if they could make use of it. George Mueller said, can we ever? God indeed rescued Mueller. And as we will see in this section, he intends to rescue each and every one of his people from their troubles as well. In verse 12, the psalmist repeats his prayer asking God to be near and to help him. And then in verse 13, he turns the intentions of his enemies towards themselves. He uses the language of his enemies against them in prayer. Whereas in verse 1, his enemies are seeking to shame him, now he's asking God to shame his enemies, to cover them with scorn and disgrace. And while God fights for him, here's what he'll be doing. Verse 14, I will hope continually and I will praise you yet more and more. While God is busy fighting for the psalmist, he has a job as well. His job is, I will continually hope in you and praise you more and more. Now, how can his mouth be full of praises when his life is entangled in the cords of trouble? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 15. He says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for Their number is past my knowledge. Everywhere the psalmist looks throughout his personal history, he recognizes the salvation of God. Way back in verse 3, he says this, You have given the command to save me. In other words, your word has gone out from you to ensure and accomplish my salvation. Now, does that remind you of something that you read in the New Testament? About the Word going out to accomplish the salvation of God's people? On this side of the cross, we should be reminded of what Christ has done for us, what Jesus has done for us. God sent to the world the eternal Word, the Son of God. Who took on our flesh and accomplished our salvation through his substitutionary death on the cross where he died for the forgiveness of our sins. Looking at the cross of Christ should cause confidence to rise in our hearts. It should stir fresh faith to believe that Even before we experience rescue from whatever trouble that we're experiencing, that he's not only able to rescue us from trouble, but he's willing to rescue us from our trouble. If the Father would go to such great lengths to accomplish our salvation, to save us from our sin, wouldn't he be willing to go to the lengths To save us from our present troubles? And not only does the psalmist look to his eternal salvation as a means of encouragement. In verse 6 he says, you took me from my mother's womb. Now he's looking back and he's recognizing that through every age and every stage of his life, he sees the rescuing hand of God to save him swooping in to protect him, a refuge that rescues. And all of this is stirring his faith to believe that God would do it again. He's done it all these times in the past. If He's taken care of my greatest problem, that is my sin against a holy and righteous God by sending and sacrificing His own beloved Son, by sending the eternal Word to live a perfect life and die on the cross as a substitute in my place for my sin, so that I could be forgiven, restored to right relationship with him. If he's done that, if he saved me through the countless if other times, saved me from my mother's womb when I was born, he saved me there. If he saved me, I can look back at moments where he saved me in my life. Moments where he's protected me from danger, a car accident, where you take a left at a yellow light, and someone blows through it and almost T-bones you, where he saved you. Or you think of countless other ways that he he saved you. The psalmist is using all of these things in this hour of need. He's remembering, recalling all of these things. And he's saying, these things inform to inspire my faith to believe that though I haven't experienced salvation from my present trouble, I believe he's going to do it again. That is... Amazing. That's amazing. Now, why does he want God to save him again? He has a very specific reason for why he wants God to save him, to protect him, to defend him, to rescue him. Now that he's older, in verse 17, he says... I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. The psalmist is transitioning to a new stage of his life, and he says in verse 18, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. He envisions, the psalmist is envisioning, he has a vision for the third chapter of his life. He envisions gathering around the younger generation and testifying to them the salvation of God. I think that is a compelling vision for all of us, whether we are in the third chapter of our lives or whether we are in the second or the first. This is a compelling vision of how to finish our life well. He doesn't see the last chapter of his life as an opportunity to recline, to take it easy, to retire on the shores of the beach. He desperately wants to make it to old age. He's asking for gray hairs. God, give me more gray hairs so that I can proclaim the power of your salvation to a younger generation. I just love that vision of the Christian life. And what a compelling vision this should be for the local church, that we're not just one age group, that we would be a diverse body of believers, and praise God, we are. I mean, that is amazing. I never get over how amazing that is. There are just too many churches in our culture that ignore the voice of the older saints. But may that not be the case ever at Living Hope. My vision for this church is to see older believers intentionally pouring in to younger believers. And praise God, in our young life, we are experiencing that right now. We're experiencing that right now for the ladies. I think about Miss Barb and Miss Barb, I am not calling you old. I am not calling you old. I think that I think this is a grace. The psalmist sees it as a grace. But Miss Barb is leading a Bible study where she intentionally pours wisdom of years walking with her savior into a younger generation. Think about Miss Terry and her podcast that is intentionally designed to pass on wisdom and parenting to the next generation. I think of every time we have a men's ministry, man, some of the most vocal people at the meeting are the older brothers. And yes, guys, I'm calling you old. I'm not calling the ladies old, but I'm calling the guys old. These guys speak with wisdom. And in that moment, they are pouring years of experience walking with the Lord, years of experience on how to defeat sin, years of experience on how to love your wife well, years of experience on how to not look past the younger years of your children, to soak up every moment, intentionally disciple them, pour gospel-centered grace instruction into their life. Our community groups, we have diversity, and that's intentional. We have diversity of age, and that's intentional so that there would be mutual benefit and encouragement and godliness regarding one stage in life. That's why community groups are so important in the life of this church. Well, they're so important it's because it's a unique opportunity where there are different ages and stages of life gathered together that can talk to one another about, here's how you can follow Christ better. Here's what you should be doing in parenting. Here's what you shouldn't be doing in parenting. So the psalmist says, God, please get me to the age and the stage of my life where I have gray hairs so that I can tell younger generations about your greatness, about all the ways that you've saved me from troubles. Verse 19, he tethers his hope to the righteousness of God that reaches high into the heavens. He trusts in God alone to do what God alone can do. That's why he says in verse 20, you will revive me again. I mean, th- look at that language. You will, you will bring me up. Not even death. Look what he says. Being buried in the depth of the earth can shake this man's confidence in God's ability to bring him up, to revive him, to rescue him. Nothing can shake the man's confidence in his Savior. In verse 20, he gives us insight that he really believed without ever actually seeing it that God could raise him from the dead if his enemies choked him out. And I'm convinced that because we live on this side of the cross of Christ, who is the resurrection, who is the resurrection in the life, that we should have even more confidence than what the psalmist could have ever imagined. Because we've seen that God has done it. He raised his beloved son from the dead. Nothing should shake our confidence in God's power to protect and save us from our troubles now and to come. So what must we do if we are entangled in trial and swallowed up in trouble? Well, verse 22 to 24 tells us, this is key. I will praise you with the harp. For your faithfulness. Oh my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed, who sought to do me hurt. The psalmist purposes to praise God with these four I wills. He will praise God. He will have faith that God rescues and redeems his people from trouble. He will talk about the faithfulness of God to to his promises. He will talk about God punishing his people's enemies. But here's the pressing final question of Psalm 71 to every single ear and heart this morning. Will you? It's one thing for this psalmist to say, I will, but the pressing question is, will you? Will you have faith? that despite where you are and what trouble you are experiencing that God will rescue you will you trust that through every age and every stage of your life that God is faithful to rescue you from troubles and enemies that surround you will you be determined to praise the Lord even before you experience the salvation from this present trouble that you're entangled in. (laughs) This morning, perhaps, there are no more important words for you to proclaim than these two. I will. So, friend, will you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close Lord we (laughs) let me just speak for me I want to praise you like every moment no matter what trial or circumstance or trouble engulfs me so Lord I want to ask you for the help to do that ask you for the help to do that for the grace to believe that that is appropriate, that your word commands that, to believe that you, you are all about protecting and saving us from our troubles so that we can get to an older generation and turn back around and proclaim your salvation to a younger generation. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for your word. It's amazing, in praise in Jesus' name. Amen.